Welcome everyone to another regularly scheduled rerun. As promised, this is the second of two reruns going out during our holiday break. Also, as promised, members are enjoying their second bonus edition in which Amanda and I I think honestly do the impossible. We not only talk about some of the nuances of technical legislation, but also discuss, get this, the concept of standing in line, and we manage to make it all interesting. I promise. Uh, A listener recently asked me how we can create legislation without it being made worse when people allow their pre-existing ideologies to get in the way, you know, rather than just trying to do what's best. And this discussion is my answer to that listener. And as part of that conversation, we talk about climate legislation and some of the ways economists think. So I was able to find this perfect companion episode to go with it. So enjoy this breakdown of the clash between climate science and economic theory. And if you are a member now or want to sign up as one, of course, listen in on our deep dive on how ideology gets in the way of good policy. To get that, you can sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the film Surviving Progress, The Young Turks, The Tom Hartman Program, The Green News Report, The Green Interview, The David Pakman Show, The Majority Report, and activism from The Leap Year Manifesto. economists say if you clear cut the forest take the money and put it in the bank you can make six or seven percent if you clear cut the forest put it into malaysia or papua new guinea you can make 30 or 40 percent so who cares whether you keep the forest cut it down put the money somewhere else when those forests are gone put it in fish when the fish are gone put it in computers money doesn't stand for anything and money now grows faster than the real world conventional economics is a form of brain damage Economics is so fundamentally disconnected from the real world. It is destructive. If you take a, an introductory course in economics, the professor in the first lecture will show a slide of the economy. And it looks very impressive, you know, raw materials, extraction, process, manufacture, wholesale, retail, with arrows going back and forth. And they try to impress you because they think, they, they know damn well, economics is not a science. But they're trying to fool us into thinking that it's a real science. It's not. Economics is a set of values that they then try to use mathematical equations and all that stuff and pretend that it's a science. But if you ask the economist, in that equation, where do you put the ozone layer? Where do you put the deep underground aquifers of fossil water? Where do you put topsoil or biodiversity? Their answer is, oh, those are externalities. Well, then you might as well be on Mars. That economy is not based in anything like the real world. It's life, the web of life that filters water in the hydrologic cycle. It's microorganisms in the soil that create the soil that we can grow our food in. Nature performs all kinds of services. Insects fertilize all of the flowering plants. These services are vital to the health of the planet. Economists call these externalities. That's nuts. 
We're told over and over the economy is the bottom line. I don't think so. What kind of a world would I like to see our species generations from now? I hope it will be a creature that understands what the real bottom line is. Put in your car or burn to heat your home actually costs a lot more than it seems like it does. But don't worry, you're not the one who has to pay that extra cost. I'm talking about externalities, the hidden economic and environmental costs of burning fossil fuels that are distributed not to the person who does the purchasing, but to everyone. It's stuff that we have to pay as a society and as individuals, and it's extremely high. Let's take a look at a chart showing the, uh, the adding up of these externalities. The big thing you're seeing there is the cost in terms of air pollution. So air pollution obviously costs in terms of making people sick, causing disease and things of that sort. And you're seeing there that coal alone does multi-trillion dollar uh, damage costs in terms of air pollution. Then you have uh, the impact on global warming and the effect that global warming has not just on the environment but also on businesses in terms of wildfires and other things of that sort. You see lost tax revenue for some of those, and also traffic accidents, road damage from spills, and, and things of that sort, explosions, fires, those sorts of things. Now, that's a lot of, lot of bars, a lot of numbers there. Let's, let's add it up for you. The hidden economic environmental costs of fossil fuel consumption, the externalities, add up to nearly $5 trillion a year, or 33% more than the entire federal budget. So obviously a very large cost there. Now, I understand that many people will hear about these externalities and think, well, those are hypothetical. I mean, who knows if I, if I like burn some gas, someday somebody somewhere might get emphysema or something of that sort, but you can't say who it is. And that is true, but that doesn't mean that the costs aren't real. That disease exists. Its treatment costs something. And those costs should be borne in mind when you're making making your purchases or as a country when we're deciding what sort of energy policy we're going to pursue what we're going to incentivize with tax tax breaks and things of that sort now of course if you were to factor these externalities into the original cost of coal or oil natural gas gasoline they would cost more and we know that when you raise the price of something consumption of it goes down and so if you actually factored in these externalities what effect would it have on what we purchase well, uh, gasoline price would jump as much as 50%. Significant increase. Not quite to Europe levels, but more expensive than we're used to. Carbon emissions would drop by 20%, which, bear in mind, is larger than a lot of the current plans to cut our carbon actually go for. We're looking at 20% right off of that. 
and air pollution deaths would drop by 55%, which is a significant improvement for the people and their families who actually experience uh, diseases borne by air pollution and things of that sort. So, look, you can, you can take from this what you will, but I would like it if you bear in mind the next time that you are at a gas station, the cost of the fuel that you're putting in your car might be a lot higher than the sign indicates it is. The Obama administration is preparing to push TPP, SHAFTA, the Southern Hemisphere Asian Free Trade Agreement or the Trans-Pacific Partnership, whatever you want to call it. And then soon after that, it'll be followed by TTIP with Europe to basically lock in profits for the big media companies who are protecting their monopolies that are called copyrights and the big pharmaceutical companies and uh, computer companies that are protecting their monopolies uh, via by a patents, by and large, in some cases, copyright as well. They they want these deals, but you know the deals are going to just destroy American jobs. In fact, the Obama administration is talking about the TPP as a small sacrifice of American jobs for a more stable system. Right? Stable for whom? And here's the proof in that particular pudding. Yesterday. TransCanada. TransCanada is the Canadian company that wanted to build the Trans Canadian the, the the Keystone XL pipeline. And you'll recall the president has stopped the Keystone XL pipeline. So TransCanada just sued the United States for fifteen billion dollars in lost profits. This lawsuit will be adjudicated. Not before the U.S. Supreme Court, not even in any court in the United States. It will be adjudicated in what's called an ISDS, Investor Services, something, something. Uh, this is basically in a, in a court. Well, here's this. This is a, a backgrounder I got from uh, Lori Wallach over at Public Citizen. And these are the, the, the tribunals. These are three-judge tribunals. This will be heard in front of a three-judge tribunal, not a court sanctioned by any nation. TPP tribunals are staffed by three private sector attorneys who are allowed to rotate between acting as judges and acting as advocates for the investors launching the cases. So the prosecutors are also the judges. Such dual roles would be deemed unethical in most legal systems. Yeah, you think? There is no requirement for tribunals to be independent or impartial in either NAFTA or TPP. There is no system of outside appeal on the merits of a decision, and the TPP does not establish any appellate body. You can't, there's no Supreme Court of the TPP. And you can't appeal anything to any nation because nations are cut out of the equation. This is about corporations controlling governments. There is no exhaustion requirement. There's no requirement that foreign firms first have to solve their problems with 
the law, you know, the domestic legal and administrative venues, in other words, through through local courts, there's no requirement that they have to do that. They can just go right to the ISDS courts and the TPP and sue us. Bang, bingo, which is what uh, TransCanada just did with uh, NAFTA. And even when governments win, even if we win, even if we say, no, we're not going to give you the the $15 billion under TPP rules, we, the United States, citizens of the United States, you and me, can be ordered to pay for the tribunal's costs and legal fees, which average around $8 million a case. That mind-boggling? Nevada, the solar industry is leaving Las Vegas and the entire state. We were heartbroken that they made this choice to just rip the rug out from under thousands of customers, thousands of employees. These new rates have made it impossible for us to operate as a business here. That was a regional manager of industry leader Solar City after the Nevada Public Utilities Commission approved a recent request by Nevada's monopoly electric utility, NV Energy, to gut the state's solar net metering program. That pays rooftop solar owners for electricity that they deliver back to the grid. NV Energy also now gets to charge hefty new monthly fees to both new and existing customers. Solar City and other major residential rooftop solar companies have now now left Nevada, laying off thousands of workers. It was a somber, frustrating day as Solar City's crew tore down the same structure where they learned how to install solar panels. Our existing customers are no longer saving money. They're actually paying more than they would if they didn't have solar. Uh, so it's it's prevented us from being able to operate to to sales and installations here in Nevada. So this is an amazing story to me. These are people who put solar panels on their roof. Uh, they were promised a, a cut in electricity rates since sunshine is free. That's right. And it's happening from monopoly utilities all over the country. This is absolutely remarkable. I don't see how it stands, but I guess for now, uh, people in Nevada, where there is nothing but sun falling from the sky, by the way, they're just completely out of luck. This is amazing. That's right. Novelist, essayist, and philosopher, Ronald Wright is the author of a profound little book with the deeply ironic title, A Short History of Progress. It's a study of the ways that past societies have failed and collapsed by making the very mistakes that we're making today. The antidote, says Wright, is a kind of hope that's, quote, clear-sighted and informed and inspires people to wise and necessary action, however difficult. You know, my background was uh, in archaeology when I was a student, and I started thinking about this pattern of rise and fall of ancient civilizations. And, and even before we had what archaeologists call a civilization, which essentially is a, a settled society with an agricultural base and 
governments and armies and cities. Uh, but even before that, even if you go back towards the end of the old Stone Age, when the, the Paleolithic hunters um, perfected their art of hunting, you see the same pattern of uh, a rapid increase in wealth and prosperity in numbers uh, caused by a new way to exploit n nature. In their case, um, they had perfected the art of killing large numbers of mammoths and wild horses and whatever else was out there. Um, and they became rich for a while, but they used up all the game. Uh, and it's, it's only that that coincided more or less with the end of the Ice Age. And undoubtedly, there, there were other factors such as natural climate change. But the human beings themselves had an impact because they were probably burning an awful lot of woodland and grasslands and so on to make uh, grazing to encourage these herds of animals on which they preyed. So the human beings were already affecting their environment through the use of fire. And they were obviously affecting the animals by driving whole herds over a cliff in order to eat a few, which was a very profligate use of, of a resource that, if properly managed, might have supported them forever, but won't support you forever if you're using up uh, uh, far more than you need, and, and if you're using it up more quickly than it can regenerate. And of course, also the other, the other trap there is that as prosperity increases, people have more children, so the population increases. So then you get a situation where you constantly have to take more from nature to support more people in this, uh, this, uh, this prosperous lifestyle. So it starts way back there with those hunters at the end of the old Stone Age, but it really, the really big progress traps uh, come with, with the invention of agriculture. And I, I mentioned the first full-blown civilization in the old world, the Sumerians, who um, perfected the art of irrigation in what is now southern Iraq. Uh, and they, um, for, for several centuries, everything went really well. They, they, they had built canals and ran the, the water onto the desert and were able to raise more and more crops and expand their farmland and expand their population and their cities got bigger, their numbers got greater. But what they didn't know is that the kind of irrigation they were practicing was causing the land to get saltier and saltier. And after a number of centuries, they suddenly saw their farm yields declining because of salinity. And um, they had to switch to crops that could tolerate more salt. And then eventually they ended up producing only about one quarter of the food that they'd been able to produce when they started. And the civilization collapsed. So they had walked into what I call in my book a progress trap, and this is where the myth of progress is so seductive. You, you, you do something that in the short run produces obvious benefits, so you're getting this positive feedback from some new invention, whether it's you know, a new way to drive mammoth over a cliff or whether it's a new way to uh, expand your farm base through irrigation. But there's a hidden cost down the road, which is often hard to foresee. I don't think it's so hard to foresee the fact that if you're killing large, you know, if you're killing thousands of mammoths and horses, the sooner or later you're going to run out of them. But it was probably impossible for the Sumerians to foresee that uh, their brilliant invention of irrigation was eventually going to lead to the destruction of the land. You look at those ancient cities in uh, southern Iraq today, uh, and, and you see these mud brick pyramids sitting in the middle of extremely desolate wastelands.
And those wastelands were once you know, fertile farmland with date palms and trees and fields, and they have been turned into deserts by the activity of the people who built those cities. I'm joined today by Roger Sorkin, who's producer and director of The Burden, Fossil Fuel, the Military and National Security, and the executive producer at his production company, Sorkin Strategic Communications, also a fellow with the Truman National Security Project. Roger, you make the case, and I think it's a very interesting case, that the military uh, is and should be the leader when it comes to moving the United States off of dirty fossil fuels and to renewable alternative energy. Make the case for that. How did you first start thinking about this and, and, and exploring it? Sure. So um, a number of reasons, uh, one of which started in 2010 when the military put out their quadrennial defense review and uh, just declared that climate change was a threat multiplier for them. Um, and of course, if we can solve, uh, you know, a big part of solving the climate problems are, are making sure we get the energy equation just right. And with regards to the military, you know, they, they've since come out since 2010. They've, they've, there have been more studies and more reports out showing how climate change is uh, exacerbating uh, some of our security challenges. Um, but on the operational side, I began to hear stories about how our, our troops who were deployed not only are they deployed to help keep the flow of oil uh, moving freely throughout the world, um, and the, you know the U.S. is a huge consumer of the global supply, even though we may be drilling at home, uh, we still have to import quite a bit of oil, and the global economy relies upon our military to make sure that that oil flows freely uh, for the sake of the economy, um, but also our troops that are reliant upon oil to fight actually do the fighting, and this uh, comes out of the, uh, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, we lost a lot of people just moving fuel throughout the battlefield. We spent a lot of money and extra time um, with the military call opportunity costs so that if we are spending more of our time on protecting and defending the flow of fuel uh, or the transport of fuel, uh, we are not able to do some of the more important work that require, is required to, to win battles and to win wars, such as counterinsurgency and intelligence gathering. Uh, I talked with folks in the film who uh, were parts of uh, scout platoons whose job normally would be to go out and gather intelligence uh, and interact with the local population, but more often than not, uh, they would be on uh, convoy detail protecting the, 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 tr the transport of fuel so that uh, for the next day they can then put it into their vehicles and go back out and protect tomorrow's fuel convoy. So yeah, it was I mean, just the, this the terrible cycle. The absurdity of using so much fuel, fossil fuels, to go out and fight wars sometimes motivated by the location of, of reserves that would give us access to more fossil fuels uh, and sometimes protecting fossil fuel reserves. It, it's just an incredible vicious cycle that I, I think should re really uh, be bringing together those on the left and right, albeit maybe for different reasons. There, there's nothing good 
about the U.S. having to put so much of military uh, spending and and uh, labor hours into protecting these resources when whether you think that it's because we should be having the, the sort of climate concern as the number one concern or whether, as you mentioned, the military has sort of better things to focus on than just securing these fossil fuel resources, the left and right should really be united on this, shouldn't they? Absolutely. And that was one of the intentions of the film was to really try to depoliticize these issues. Uh, so, you know, when we have our, our outreach and our panel discussions, we just launched a campaign called Lift the Burden. Uh, it's hashtag Lift the Burden. Um, we don't lead with climate change. And, you know, we try to localize the issues so that if we're going to military communities, um, you know, we try to meet people where they are. We're not going to go into a military community where people have lost disproportionate numbers of their loved ones and say, okay, we have to worry about uh, the icebergs melting. Um, we'll go in and we'll say that you're losing too many people. Um, you know, I mean, these are folks who know what they signed up for. As, as, as one of our, our soldiers in the film says, we know what we signed up for. We're prepared to give our lives for our country, but we weren't prepared to spend so much time on getting and protecting fuel. And so when we put it in terms of lives and money, uh, another way to say that is blood and treasure. Um, you know, that's an area that really resonates across the political spectrum. It's, it's not ideological to say we don't want to lose more lives than we have to lose to protect American security. And we don't want to spend an, more, more dollars than we need to to do it. Um, and that's really our message. And that's, that's the, that's our pitch to, to conservatives. Um, I should also say within the business community, we, we were just, uh, strangely for a filmmaker, we were invited to, uh, ring the opening bell at the NASDAQ opening ceremony a couple of weeks ago on Veterans Day. Right. Um, because business leaders, and they understand the free market conservative argument that we're making, which is that the military, and you, you mentioned earlier, David, about you know, why is the military, uh, you know, the, perhaps the best place to, to lead this? It's because of the scale. And because when the military issues a contract demanding a certain technology or a solution to a technological problem that they might have, private industry has always been there. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's the big bad military industrial complex, but, you know, if you harness that for good, then we have the ability to scale up new technologies. And, well, we were just and talking. Where, we were just talking, Roger, about uh, I don't remember the specifics of what it was, but it was a story about Japan and uh, a, a new technology that they're developing. I believe it was related to autonomous vehicles and vehicle safety. And sometimes when we hear about Japan, we can very quickly say, "Wow, Japan is just so much more advanced than the U.S. in so many areas of technology." And the reality probably is not that. The reality is probably that. Within the U.S. military, we're seeing that same level of technological development that Japan is seeing, but because of many of the commitments you're talking about, these are new technologies that are for, for much longer uh, staying sort of within the scope of the military rather than coming out for consumers the way we're seeing in Japan. And that, I think, is a really good argument for why the U.S. military probably has the resources and technology to get us off of fossil fuels completely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that's one of the messages in the film is that we have this, this long tradition. For better or worse, uh, many of our technological innovations that started out of military need, they were, they were demanded by the military, uh, whether it was GPS or air, certain aerospace or communications technologies that started uh, on a military testbed because of a military need, then eventually crossed over into the civilian sector. And that, that really is one of the objectives of the film is to, to, to highlight that, that, uh, you know, because of the large scope 
at our, our military commands out of our federal budget. I mean, it's it's twenty percent of every dollar is being consumed by uh, by defense spending. Um, I mean, that's what that's problem in and of itself. But as long as that remains the case, then there's no better purchaser of new technologies than the U.S. military, which you know I should say on the on the the wrong side of the equation is the world's largest institutional consumer of oil. No question about it. And and I think the, the sort of other angle, and you talk about this in the film, is the way in which our the sort of status quo around fossil fuels and particularly oil actually serves as a flow of money from the U.S. to our enemies in many ways. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So oil is a global commodity, and it's set on the global market. Um, we do not control the price. Um, no matter how much we produce at home, we still have a high demand. Even if we're demanding it and it's coming from our own reserves or our, our North Dakota or Alaska, which which does not have that much compared with the oil reserves around the world. Um, I mean, we in the United States, we only have 2% of the proven reserves. Um, so so we are still tied into this this global market and and we we are 5% of the world's population yet we use 20% of the world's oil and so that demand in and of itself is is a is a major factor in keeping the price where it is and the sooner we can reduce that demand the less that price is going to remain. I mean, if you know, basic laws of economics, we reduce our demand, that cost comes down. And what happens now is that all of what what we call these petrodollars, you know, the money that we send overseas to pay for our oil, goes into the hands often of countries that are at least adversarial to us. Um, and it also keeps the price high for uh, extremist groups and other adversaries that use oil sales to to generate uh, profits for their operations. Last thing I want to touch on in the limited time we have left, is there anything the average person can do about this? I mean, there are groups that work on uh, spending in the federal budget. The National Priorities Project, for example, comes to mind. But is there really anything that people who recognize the opportunity and the problem you're laying out here, can people really do anything about this? Yes, absolutely. I mean, one, one thing you can do is, is go to hashtag lift the burden and get involved with our campaign. But I would say, you know, thinking about the way our electoral system is set up, um, I mean, it's unfortunate that's, that some states don't really have that much influence over certain issues. I mean, you know, to go to uh, Massachusetts and say, uh, okay, hey, we're going to mobilize the congressional delegation for uh, climate change legislation. I mean, that's, that's sort of preaching to the choir. So yeah. I think what, what has to happen, and, and you do find this a lot of conservative um moderates independents they they're looking for an entry point to talk about this issue they they want to do something on climate and energy but they know that if they stick their neck out in the wrong direction then they're going to get tagged as a liberal they're going to have a primary challenger there's going to be campaign ads of them standing with al gore right. uh, even if they photoshop that in there and so what we need to be able to do is you know if you are in a conservative leaning state Call your representative and tell them, you know, you've got their back, that you want them to do this in the name of national security. Right. In other uh, words, there won't buy. be electoral repercussions necessarily if they are on the right side of this thing. That's our argument. I mean, I think if you couch it in terms of national security, which is, I would say, the most important element of it, um, that's where, you know, someone like Lindsey Graham, for example, he hasn't gotten much traction in the presidential election, but he has come out and said climate change is a security concern. Right. Um, 
And, you know, that's, that's where the argument needs to be. And so, you know, there are a lot of Republicans out there that, that we've, we've actually had a lot of private screenings with Republicans because they don't want to be on the record publicly with this. Um, but if you, if you are in one of their districts, call them up and tell them, look, you know, you got to do something about this. Save American lives, save, save our, our treasury and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, take some sort of action now. The film is The Burden, Fossil Fuel, The Military, and National Security. We've been speaking with the film's producer and director, Roger Sorkin. Thanks so much for being on today. I never knew the desert could be so high. And all this heavy equipment, it must cost a lot. Meanwhile, in California, in Porter Ranch, which is a community about 25 miles north of Los Angeles, for three months now, there has been a massive methane leak from an underground tank of methane that is piped to Porter Ranch from Texas, from the Midwest, from the Rocky Mountains. Methane has been leaking into the air at a rate of almost 1,300 metric tons a day. It has forced the evacuation of about 2,000 homes, the closing of two schools, and widespread reports of residents being sickened. Nosebleeds, I mean, who knows what else. This leak became the single biggest source of methane emission in all of California almost overnight. Apparently, it started on October 23rd. Within days, it was already the biggest single source of methane emissions in all of California. According to the Washington Post, when you project this leak out over 20 years, it's equal to the emissions of six coal-fired power plants or 7 million cars. It's massive. They don't think they're going to be able to get this under control for at least two or three months. There has been over 73,000 metric tons of methane gas pumped into the atmosphere. You know that methane gas has up to 80 times the the global warming potential of CO2. This is the bridge fuel, folks, that's going to take us from oil to batteries. Everything's going to be fine once we get to solar and wind. In the meantime, we may have, you know, speeding up the rate of global warming significantly because we now have found something even worse for uh, the creation of greenhouse gases than uh, CO2. So now what they're doing apparently is they're, digging these big wells and pouring cement down there in the hopes of, I guess, like, maybe we'll bump up against the leak somewhere. But think about the implications of this. This isn't like we move out of our house 
And then in three or four months after we've destroyed the, um, we've seriously poisoned the atmosphere, we move back in. A lot of people were hoping to sell their homes. How many people are interested now in buying a, a home in Porter Ranch, California? I guess for those who are looking for a house at 80% of the value it represented uh, two months ago. And I guess, you know, some conservatives. I guess our, our, our buddy Doug, who calls in in the fun half of the show, might be looking for something. It's a great value. And I imagine this would be a libertarian paradise, right? As long as we price it in. Brad Sherman is on the line with us, a Democrat from California representing the 30th District. Sherman.house.gov is the website. Congressman, welcome back to the program. Good to be with you. Great to have you with us. Uh, is it is this uh, gas, natural gas blowout in your district? You know, um, it's actually in Steve Knight's district. I represent maybe a third of the people affected. He represents about uh, two-thirds of the people who are affected. Uh-huh. Okay, so tell us what's going on. Uh, the, my home is uh, just about as close as, as anyone's uh, to the uh, to the blowout. Yikes! So, so what uh, what's happening here? Well, you have an enormous amount of natural gas escaping. That's methane. That's um, uh, other hydrocarbons associated with the methane in small quantities, and it's also the mercaptan, which is what gives methane. Uh, the smell, it's designed to be alarming, annoying, and, and stinky to humans, right. and it does its job uh, very well. So so basically, the people of, of your district and, and your colleagues' district are being poisoned by this gas qualm. My understanding is that that there was a, an, uh, this was an, a gas field, it was an oil and gas field back 60 years ago, yep. where they pumped all the oil out of there and were leaving a huge empty dome underground. That over the last uh, 50, 60 years, they've been using it as a storage site for natural gas. And that uh, back in the 70s, the uh, emergency shutoff valve uh, failed and they dug it up and looked at it and said, you know, it's going to cost more to fix and just decided to go without it. And that's the reason why Southern California Gas made that decision back some decades ago. And that's the decision why they can't turn. That's the reason why they can't turn this thing off now. Do I have that right? You do have that right, although what would have been better back in 1979, uh, because they couldn't get the parts to fix this uh, shutoff valve or safety valve uh, because it was so old, is they should have removed it and replaced it. And if they right. didn't make that decision in 79, they could have made the right decision in 89 or 99 or any, any day for the last uh, several decades. Uh, instead, there is no... Um, a deep uh, subsurface uh, shutoff valve. Uh, the new ones are better because they're positive pressure, and so uh, they will stop the gas if there's an earthquake, or a, a, they'll stop the gas unless uh, they're getting pressure to let the gas uh, uh, go through.
through. So right. um, this is the fifth largest natural gas facility in the country. This is the largest uh, natural gas leak in history. And um, uh, we've got uh, thousands of, uh, of families uh, that have been relocated um, at the expense of SoCal gas. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, we're talking with Congressman Brad Sherman, representing the 30th District of California, which has been affected by this methane blowout. Um, the governor just declared a state of emergency, which I assume gives him additional powers to deal with this and might bring some federal uh, money or attention to it. Is, is is that right, and is that the right thing to do? It gives him the power to order people to do what needs to be done to deal with the emergency. Point three... Uh, to me, is the most important part, and it needs to be tightened. And I'll be, uh, um, we've contacted the governor's office on that, and I'll send them a formal letter either uh, probably last thing today. Mm-hmm. Um, it orders uh, SoCal Gas to remove the gas uh, to the extent, to the maximum extent that they can sell it or store it elsewhere. And that's what they have been doing. The problem is SoCal Gas still regards this gas as an asset when it's really a toxin, and they should be withdrawing the gas day and night, every hour of the day, as quickly as they can. What can't be sold in the ordinary course, what can't be stored elsewhere, they can give to the electric utilities who can generate unneeded electricity and either sell it on the grid at a discount or just ground it. But the electric utilities in the winter are running a a lot less natural gas uh, than they are in the summer because people aren't using the air conditioning. So Uh um, we certainly don't want to flare or leak this gas elsewhere, but we need to pull it out not only to meet consumer demand, uh, but to to incinerate it safely wherever that can be done. Which, Which raises an interesting question. In fact, somebody called into this program yesterday and asked this question. Um, why are they not flaring this gas? I mean, if you burn natural gas, natural gas is mostly methane, um, which is 80 times more potent a greenhouse gas for at least, you know, its, it's half-life is about, I think, 28 years or thereabouts. So every 20 years, roughly, it becomes half as potent. But, you know, in the first the first uh, a few decades or even the first century of its existence, it's so much more potent than CO2. But if you burn it, uh, the methane breaks into two carbon, you know, the the two two molecules of carbon dioxide. Cleanly, then uh, you're not warming the planet any more than if you use it in the ordinary course, which of course right. is to burn it cleanly. So why aren't they flaring this stuff? Why don't uh, they ignite well, that that there, volcano? There are two things that they could flare. They are trying to uh, engage in a methane capture program, which will be tough to try to uh, the, the 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 gas is bubbling out somehow capture it and then flare it. They're willing to flare that which is being lost, uh, but what they're not willing to do is extract the gas and flare it. Uh, it, it, uh, We're dealing with uh, millions of cubic feet, which is the leak. You're talking about billions of, of cubic feet in storage, and they only want to withdraw from storage what they can sell. Uh, right. They don't want to withdraw from storage that which they would have to flare. So they're uh, they're willing to uh, waste or flare the gas that leaks. But this is a huge uh, uh, reservoir. Uh, it had they told me seventy seven billion cubic feet, and then after a lot of of cross examination, said, "Oh yeah, and also sixty billion additional cubic feet that we call cushion gas." 
Wow. So uh, you're talking about over a, well over 100 billion uh, cubic feet of, of natural gas. So and they're That's and they're reluctant to flare this. Dollars, and uh, they're only willing to extract uh, what they can uh, sell. And they're reluctant to flare this anywhere else in order to reduce the pressure at the leak site because... They are reducing the pressure, okay. but only to the extent they can sell the gas. Yeah. And, so, uh, so, so this is a classic so, example of profits over the commons, is it not? I, I think it's bad profits policy. Um, uh, you know, the... Uh, uh, the trial lawyers are coming to Porter Ranch. Uh, there are meetings with over a hundred potential plaintiffs at a, a thousand potential plaintiffs at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's penny wise and pound foolish for SoCal Gas not to be pulling this gas out as quickly as they possibly can. Now, uh, they'll tell you they're pulling out a billion cubic feet uh, a day on average, but. Um, if they were willing, if they viewed the natural gas as a toxin to be eliminated rather than an asset to be sold, um, they'd be pulling more. Right. right. And I'm meeting with uh, some of their executives later today. I've made this uh, plane uh, last time I met with their executives, and it's uh, it's sometimes hard to get a straight answer. I was living in the devil town. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, Leap Year Manifesto, Mobilize Towards New Economic and Energy Systems. Naomi Klein, author of This Changes Everything, Capitalism versus the Climate, is working on a new project, and it is bold. At a two-day meeting this past spring in Toronto, attended by representatives from Canada's indigenous rights, social and food justice, environmental, faith-based, and labor movements, a manifesto was created to advance economic and climate justice. The Leap Year Manifesto has over 32,000 signatories, including organizations like 350.org, Sierra Club Canada, and Black Lives Matter Toronto. Here's how Naomi describes it in her own words. So the Leap Manifesto is a people's agenda um, for where we want to take this country in light of the multiple crises that we face in Canada and around the world. The climate crisis, the inequality crisis, economic, racial, and gender exclusion. Um, But it's not a laundry list of issues. It's actually a coherent vision that knits together all of these issues and says, scientists are telling us we need to lower our emissions fast. Engineers are telling us that we can do it fast, that we could get to 100% renewable energy in the next uh, 20 years on electricity. By mid-century, we could have a 100% clean economy. But for us, that's not good enough. We also, as we transition away from fossil fuels, we want to do it in a way that heals the wounds that date back to the founding of this country. We want to embed it in climate justice principles, which means that the people who are getting the worst deal in the current system would be first in line to benefit benefit from this transition in terms of the jobs, in terms of owning their own renewable energy. We also want to recognize that 
green workers, green jobs, are not just putting up solar panels, you know, and wind turbines. It's also uh, people who are caring for young people, for old people, who are teaching, who are making media and art. These are low-carbon professions that are actually under siege uh, through the mentality of austerity. So it's a coherent vision. And it reflects the fact that I think a lot of people in Canada um, during this election uh, are voting against something. A lot of people don't feel like they have the option to vote for the Canada that they actually want. So, uh, uh, you know, a lot of what's happening is negative. Um, the, the Leap Manifesto is positive. The Leap Manifesto is the vision for the country we actually want. It's what we're saying yes to. And it's been really exciting. You know, it's not saying voting doesn't matter. We think voting does matter. Um, but we don't think it's enough either. The Leap Year Manifesto states in part, quote, The time for energy democracy has come. We believe not just in changes to our energy sources, but that wherever possible, communities should collectively control these new energy systems, unquote. As they decided that small steps are no longer enough, the team at This Changes Everything have gone international with the goal of gathering people to mobilize towards new economic and energy systems. Today, Klein and 350.org's Bill McKibben participated in a Google Hangout you can watch at thischangeseverything.org to get more information on the worldwide effort, Leap Year 2016. In a piece at The Guardian, Klein lays out what the campaign means and why she's hopeful. Among the 15 demands in the manifesto, she's advocating for a rapid shift to 100% renewable electricity that's democratically controlled to be paid for by ending fossil fuel subsidies, imposing high royalty rates on fossil fuel extraction, and implementing cuts to military spending. Leap Year 2016 would not just address climate change. It could create equity for long-suffering groups who have dealt with discrimination and multi-generational health issues from pollution, reduce economic and gender disparities, and initiate a boom of stable, well-paying jobs. At LeapManifesto.org, you can join or host an upcoming event such as teach-ins, community discussions, screenings of This Changes Everything, and more. Klein is optimistic that this is all possible thanks to recent victories against Keystone and Shell's Arctic drilling. She closes her Guardian article with words of motivation and encouragement. Quote, Take a minute or two to think about the extra day at the end of this month. It's a reminder that people can indeed come together to change a failing set of rules. The laws of nature? Not so much. Then let's make 2016 the year we started to bridge the chasm between what is and what must be. Let's make it the year we started to leap." Unquote. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If economic and climate justice matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about Leap Year 2016 via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change That's just the inevitable culmination of its growth ever since the Stone Age. And there were way stations along the way, like the Roman Empire. And now here we are, and uh, more and more people are in the same boat. And 
they face problems and either they will solve them together or suffer together and, you know, possibly on a catastrophic scale. We are entering an increasingly dangerous period of our history. Our genetic code still carries the selfish and aggressive instincts that were of survival advantage in the past. But I'm an optimist. If we are the only intelligent beings in the galaxy, we should make sure we survive and continue. If we can avoid disaster for the next two centuries, our species should be safe. We have made remarkable progress in the last hundred years. Our only chance of long-term survival is not to remain inward-looking on planet Earth, but to spread out into space. One of the challenges that, that faces the human species is we are more and more in a position of acting like gods. This has been true for a while because we've had the ability to change the climate, for example. This is going to be even more true with genetic technologies. We're going to be able to manipulate other species and eventually ourselves. We're going to be in a position of controlling our own fate in a way that no creature has ever in you know, a billion years on the planet had an opportunity to do. I once wrote a poem in which a mad bishop said, and man became God became greater than God in the godhood of man. I do not see anyone living in this materialistic society as being anything like God. I don't know what God is, but uh, in my wildest dreams, I would never conceive of God or a God as being like uh, a modern human being in a materialistic society. We're anything but godlike. I think the challenges are so overwhelming to all of us uh, that we're all trying to just use whatever new tools we can uh, to try and change the future. Synthetic biology is a progress trap par excellence. Biologists have pointed out that these engineering approaches is all very well and the engineers can try to treat life as though it was some sort of computer or engineering substrate um, but ultimately the microbes are going to end up laughing at them that uh, that life doesn't work like that problems that we're seeing now, whether we're talking about hunger and massive inequity, whether we're talking about climate change or the loss of biodiversity, have been driven over the last 200 years by a system of 
overproduction of stuff and overconsumption of stuff. And, uh, and then that's been inflated and inflated and inflated to the point where it really is not in any way reasonable. Um, the, the companies and, and those within governments who have supported that, that approach, um, are now saying that they will provide new technologies to continue that consumption of stuff, that level of production. Um, it's just not realistic. It's easy now to see kind of a, a giant social brain or planetary brain because it's in the, it's in the physical form of the internet. It, it looks so much like a nervous system, you almost can't miss the analogy. You might say that there have always been a lot of little social brains around the planet getting bigger, starting to form little inter interconnections among themselves. Now more than ever, you could say there's a unified uh, social brain. Even if the overall arc of history is toward an expanded moral horizon, more and more people acknowledging the humanity of more and more different kinds of people, there's always the risk of backsliding and it can be catastrophic. From a point of view of strict self-interest, it is imperative that we make further moral progress, that we get more and more people uh, to acknowledge the humanity of one another, or it will be bad for pretty much all of them. If we don't uh, develop what you might call the moral perspective of God, um, then we'll screw up the engineering part of playing God um, because the, the actual engineering solutions depend on seeing things from the point of view of other people, ensuring that their lives don't get too bad because if they do, it'll come back to haunt us. Um, so, you know, Kind of half of being God has just been handed to us, and then the question is whether whether uh, we'll master the other half of being God, the moral half. The bad news is that the enlightenment is, is sometimes hard to come by uh, because of human nature in some cases. Because you know we've we've got these kind of animal minds designed for a very different environment, facing novel problems. So the enlightenment part is going to require some real education and reflection and self-discipline that may not come naturally. I think what we're up against here is human nature. We have to reform ourselves, remake ourselves in a way that cuts against the grain of our inner animal nature and transcend that ice age hunter that all of us are if you if you strip off the thin layer of civilization of this experiment we've unleashed it but we've never really controlled it but now it's more likely that we're going to come to grief because of environmental problems if we do then that is really nature saying 
the experiment of civilization is a failed evolutionary experiment, that making apes smarter is a, is a dead end. Uh, so it's up to us to prove nature wrong, in a sense, to show that we can uh, take control of our own destinies and behave in a wise way that will ensure the continuation of the experiment of civilization.